The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which we're considering uh, to look as we look at the 13 attributes of divine mercy uh, found in those two verses during this season of Advent 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at these attributes that uh, Jewish scholars have found in these verses uh, of divine mercy. And so why are we doing this? Well, because we want a better vocabulary for praise. And so if they can find 13 things to praise God for in these two verses, then maybe there's something that we can learn (laughs) that helps us be better with the language of praise, and it gives us more things to praise God for. So today, what we're looking at is the phrase here that says, "...keeping steadfast love for thousands." All right, so that we've got to, to see multiple things in that. We've got to look at multiple things in that. And so one of those has already been done. It's very easy. It's, it's steadfast love. It's hesed. That's from a couple of days ago when we looked at that. Uh, hesed is the loving kindness of God. But what does it mean that he keeps it? And then what does it mean thousands? So keeping is the first word that we have to deal with, and that the Hebrew word there is notzer, and it kind of means preserves. And so, okay, so he preserves steadfast love for thousands. Okay, so how do they understand that? What, what is that word itself, notzer, what, what does it um, intend to convey, and, and how does that play itself out in the life of Christ and in the life of Christians today? So this preserving, you could kind of say it means remembering, but it's not like when God remembered Israel. It's not that that he remembered his covenant with the ancestors and therefore um, said, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, I've got a covenant with these people. That's not the kind of remembering it is. It's a particular kind of remembering, and in the church, we see it in in a certain way. And when Jesus says, gives a commandment to, to keep this uh, Eucharist, the, this uh, Eucharistic feast, the communion that we celebrate, then he's asking us to do it in a very specific way, it, to remember him. It means, the word does in Greek, it's anamnesis, and so it's the same word as notzer, essentially. And so if you take that word and you bring it forward, then what you get is an idea of remembering that's different um, from most remembering, because what it is, it's remembering something from the past by dragging it into and participating in that past reality in the present time. So, for instance, when the people are commanded to keep the festival um, remembering the uh, Passover, the original Passover, they're told to keep it in a certain way. They're, they're actually to keep it in a way that, that mimics how their ancestors kept it. They're supposed to be prepared. They're supposed to be prepared to leave. Um, and so they're, they're to keep it with the same spirit that their ancestors did. It's, it's the purpose for remembering in all the Jewish festivals. 
it's to bring those things into the present in such a way as that you celebrate or you mourn, whichever it might be, in measure, in the same measure as those who first experienced it. So when we celebrate communion, well, when they celebrate that, what they see is they're celebrating that Passover, as it were, with every single Jew who's ever lived before, including all the way back to those who were there in the land of Egypt for the first Passover. I can remember I had a bishop, um, he was retired, but as he told me, I am still a bishop, um, who was our instructor in our first couple of years of seminary, and we met with him nearly every day that first year, a little less the second year. But we met with him nearly every day, and, and I remember at the time he was going through a lot of stuff. His wife had died, his first wife had died, and, and his son had died almost immediately thereafter. And, and he said that after his wife died, that he would go into her closet and he would just smell her clothing because he could still smell her on the clothing. And he, he prayed God would give him uh, a tangible connection to his wife. And so God said, Alec, you believe, right, in, the, um, in communion, the, in the real presence of Christ in the communion, and therefore when we celebrate it, we join our voices, he says, with, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. And that's exactly what we say in the midst of our communion service. And so when we say that, he says, do you actually believe that? that we join our voices with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. He says, if you believe that, then you can also and should also believe that if you want to have a connection with her, it's actually in taking the bread and the wine. And it's a, it was a powerful thing for him to, to recognize that truth. And it's, it, it told me something about what do I believe. When I say these words, as a priest, I say those words. We join our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Do I mean that? Do I recognize that we are participating in the worship of heaven and bringing that down to earth and us up to them? in that moment, because that's the kind of remembering that Jesus said we're supposed to do. And so there's this powerful thing in, in this kind of remembering or preserving. It's preserving the past into the present and then projecting that into the future all at the same time. And we know what the future is because he's already shown us and he's already promised us what that future is. We know from Revelation, we know from 1 Thessalonians, we know also from the Gospels where Jesus talked about what would come. So we're, we're, we're pulling the past into the present as though it were now, and then projecting all of that into the future all at the same time. So that's what that word, preserving, remembering, keeping, that, that's what it's trying to convey it's that so how do we deal with that and how do the jewish scholars deal with that and that's important for one simple reason because it's the gospel the way that they teach it the way that they say what this means because what they say is is that 
that essentially what happens is 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 that that it's something like the merits of the saints. So God preserves this loving kindness for thousands because of the merits of those who have gone before. And so he counts those things to their credit, which means that they receive mercy they haven't earned. But somebody did. And that's kind of the issue is, is that, that somebody did earn those. So you can look at that and say, well, so is this a God thing or is it the, the saints? And, and, and the scholars, the sages, the rabbis are very quick to point out any merits that were there were used up a long, long time ago. Because there's not some um, infinite number of those things that's available forever and ever and ever. If you just look at the number of Jewish people who have lived and who have pleaded for God's mercy based on the merits of their ancestors, those were used up a long time ago. So that that's kind of the problem is that that's based in justice, right? So these people accumulated more merits than they were able to get reward for in this life. That therefore, that these are available now to be used by their descendants. But that's justice, and this is talking about mercy. So it's got to be something different than that. And so what they basically say is, is that, no, 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 God brings those things in, and they're not used up when people plead based on the merits of the ancestors. No, God's so delighted in those things, and one generation adds to the next. And so if you add something, then the merits of the ones before didn't go away, and therefore they're constantly and continually available. They're never exhausted, and they're never diminished. God blesses these things and blesses people and deals more generously and mercifully with us than the ancestors' merits deserve. And so now you're probably sitting there thinking, what in the world is John talking about when he says that they're preaching the gospel? It's exactly the gospel. It's Jesus' merits. His perfection is counted to us. Millions and billions of people have access to those, and they're never diminished. Never. Jesus' merits are never diminished at all, not by my sin, not by my pleading, not by God's mercy to me based on those merits. They're always intact, and they're always available. So they see the truth in this, except for they miss it. The ancestors' merits are not even enough to outweigh one sin, but the sinless life of one man is enough to outweigh the judgment on all sin. It's an amazing thing. Absolutely an amazing thing. We see some of this in, in, in okay, how's God going to reward somebody? Well, it's based on he remembers those things. And so it's sort of like, okay, these are, these are in the permanent record. But we see a little bit of that in Esther 6, 1 to 3. Esther has prepared a banquet the day bef- this day, and, and it's only for her and the king and for Haman, the man who wants to kill all her people who has actually already erected a gallows and is prepared to kill Mordecai, who he sees as his enemy, because he's that Jew who sits over there. 
and, and won't bow down to me. And so they have the banquet, and, and Haman has now gone home, and the king, for whatever reason, is troubled, and he couldn't sleep. And this is Esther 6, 1 to 3. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, these are not the chronicles as in the chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. These are the chronicles of the king of uh, Persia. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction was bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, the rest of the story is the next person that comes in is Haman, and, and the king, who's there to hopefully put Mordecai to death. And, and so he comes in, and the king says, so what should be done for the, king, for the man the king wishes to honor? And Haman, believing that it must be him who he wishes to honor, says, well, he should be given uh, the royal robe, and then ride on a stallion that you've ridden on, and then all this other stuff, and paraded through the city and said, this man is second in command, essentially. He says, cool, that's a fantastic idea. Go find the Jew Mordecai and do that for him, and you lead the procession. And he knew then the jig was up. But that's kind of the idea of what this means to have these things brought forward into the present. And so when we see this, then, then, then we say, okay, so what does that actually look like? And, and so it's, it's exactly the way that we see it in the gospel. The way when we share with other people the gospel, what we tell them is, is, is that you're not good enough. You have not been good enough, because good enough is perfect. You have to merit it by being perfect. If you've ever sinned, you, you're, you don't merit eternal life. There's only one who does. He was resurrected from the dead, which is proof of his merit. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And what does he do there? He intercedes for you. If you'll come and lay your sins on him, then he will lay his righteousness on you. And when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. And therefore, judgment passes over you because you love his Son. And, and, and you love his Son because he died for you. He loved first, not you. So that's the way that this merit argument works. And so how does God keep this steadfast love for thousands? All right, so that's how he keeps it, right? So he looks on his son when he pleads for you. He looks on his son and says, because of him, I declare you to be innocent. I declare you to be forgiven. And I put those sins away as far as the East is from the West. And so, so Christian argument is, is that one man's merits are sufficient for that to happen. You, you don't even need all those others. Those are meaningless. They needed his merits as well. Everybody who is in heaven and will be in heaven is there because of one man, Jesus and so when Paul writes in Romans 5, he says this, and this is going to be a long read, by the way. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, not because of Adam's sin, but because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin's not counted where there's no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many had died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, his righteous life, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that's the, the distinction and the wondrous thing about Jesus, is that his death atoned for all sin, for all time because of his love, because it was his desire to do it that way. The reward that we receive is based in Jesus and him alone. We don't merit any reward at all. We merit condemnation and death. But his merits are counted to us as righteousness. It's a powerful, powerful statement about the love of God that he would do that. And then it says that he keeps, not only does he keep it, but keep that steadfast love for us, he keeps it for thousands. And that word thousands can be translated generations. And I mentioned this a couple of days ago that that that, that what they see is, is that, that he judges and brings the sins on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation versus keeping this steadfast love for thousands there's more than 1,000 in there. So they say that, that if it's four generations here, it's, it's more than, it's at least 2,000 generations for those who keep faithfulness with him. So it's, he's at least 500 times more merciful than he is judgment. And, and so I think really, though, <laughs> that's being too literal because I really believe that this thousands, and I'm not alone in saying this, that that, that that it means thousands of thousands. It, it's an uncountable number. It's innumerable because it, it's explaining the divine mercy. And so what is it that we we get out of this? And how, so it's obviously shown in the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, and his continuing work before the throne. So it, it is the gospel that yes, you're right. You're exactly right. That's how it works. We get mercy that we don't deserve because of someone else. But those someone else is you're counting on their merits. They needed Jesus too. It's this. It's why the whole thing from the time of the Reformation they were selling merits of the saints, and they still do. By the way, these are called indulgences. And you pay a certain amount, and some of the merits of the saints are transferred to your account, and you get out of purgatory sooner. Well, I don't believe in any of that. Not not a single bit of that system makes any sense to me. 
I don't want somebody else's merits. I want Jesus's merits. I'm not pleading on behalf of, oh, my father was a great guy, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't care who your father is. Your father is Billy Graham. Doesn't make any difference. You need to be relying completely on the merits of Jesus because he's the only one we know that was found fully acceptable to God because we know that because he was resurrected from the dead. It's a joy and our privilege then to go and pronounce that and proclaim that knowing that the treasury of his merits are never exhausted, that God loving somebody else doesn't diminish his love for me, that my salvation, my eternal life is not compromised by God adding another soul. In fact, he says, there's greater rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who had no need of repentance. So why don't we join truly the worship of heaven, not just in communion, but in sharing the gospel and seeing the harvest? In order that we can celebrate with heaven over the salvation of lost sinners. We know that Jesus' merits can never, ever be exhausted. And his desire to see people come into his kingdom never diminishes in any shape, form, or fashion. And his ability to intercede is not compromised by large numbers. God keeps steadfast love for thousands. He proves it by sending his son. And then in the resurrection of his son, he, he provides all that's necessary to accomplish our salvation.